Hello friends, welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from its rich past. I'm your host, Laura. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another year at Hogwarts. Oh, wait, that doesn't sound right. Um, let's try that again. Welcome to episode three of Homegrown KC. <laughs> Today's episode is all about the Kansas City Stockyards. I originally intended this episode to be the first one, but say that be. So saddle up, folks. We have a lot of ground to cover today, and even better, I didn't realize this until uh, I had almost finished writing the episode, but there's enough material here for our first two-part episode. So today we will start with the stockyards and then discuss the meatpacking plants. Part two will cover the American Royal and the decline and end of the stockyards. This was such a fascinating topic to research. I'm going to say this is probably my favorite of this introductory series. But then I do really love the Chiefs, that was pretty cool. And the Jazz will be cool, you guys haven't heard that one yet. Okay, so I don't know which episode is my favorite, but this is really, really cool. The Kansas City Stockyards spawned so many things, not just in the city, but nationally too. So let's dive in, shall we? As always, we need a little historical background before we start. The city was founded on the Missouri Riverbank in the 1830s, but that means it wasn't long until the Civil War started. No, I'm not talking about Cap versus Iron Man. I'm talking about North versus South, Union versus Confederacy, uh, which will be its own future series. But suffice it to say that Kansas City is in Missouri, which happens to be a member of the Confederacy, um, and borders Kansas, which is a member of the Union. So the border here is bad. Really, really bad. According to the Missouri Historical Review, population of Kansas City went from 10,000 before the war to 5,000 after the war. Half. That's half the population of Kansas City dead because of the Civil War. So the stockyards, which officially began in June 1871. Of course, there had been some trading before that. um, But the stockyards put Kansas City back on the map uh, and became the nucleus of power and wealth in the city. Um, and expedited livestock trade nationwide. According to Edward T. Mathani, and I um, don't know if I'm saying that correctly, um, author of Cowtown, Cattle Trails, and West Bottom Tales, 80% of all of the Kansas City businesses were located in the West Bottoms. Uh, following the Civil War, Kansas City might not have grown if not for the millions of cheap Texas cattle and the railroad yards that took products to Chicago and the East. That's also a quote from Mathani's book. Okay, so the Union Stockyards, and that's stock yards, two separate words. Uh, this will change over time. Opened in June 1871 under the direction of Superintendent Jerome Smith. Three months later, they were renamed the Kansas Stockyards, and here stockyards is one word. So, when they were established, the population had finally grown from that 5,000 to 35,000. That's some good improvement. The stockyards covered 35 acres and included a 24-foot square exchange building and four slaughterhouses. By 1914, the stockyards covered 200 acres, 
most of it paved, and employed 20,000 people. So, like, I'm just trying to give you an idea. This thing is huge. It's so important. The Livestock Exchange Building is pretty cool. Uh, so the very first one is small. It's located at 12th and State Line. A few years later, it's expanded, and then in 1909, a much bigger one is built at a new location. Like, a lot bigger. Okay, so remember that number I just gave you? 24 feet square? The ground floor of the new one is 36,000 feet square, and totaled 213,750 feet square. That's five acres. It was nine stories tall and contained 475 offices for commission firms, banks, telegraphs, the railroads, packing houses. There were also uh, post offices inside, a barbershop, and a restaurant called the Golden Knox. Hey, meat eaters out there, you guys know that thing called a KC strip? It's a type of steak. That was invented at the Golden Knox. You're welcome. So, it's an elaborate system. Um... Not overly complicated, but very large with a lot of moving parts. I have a, another quote here from Thani that provides the simplest explanation of how it all worked. He calls it a commission system. Quote, A producer assigned his cattle to a commission firm at the stockyards. Prospective buyers then gathered between the pens, sized up the cattle, made their picks, and bargained over prices with the salesmen representing the sellers. The commission mer merchant took custody but did not take title to the cattle and received his fee on consummation of the sale, end quote. So we can think of commissioners as stock traders, I think. I know it's not a great example. I don't think anyone except for a stock trader actually knows what they do. Um, but I do have a definition of a commissioner for you. Um, or, sorry, a commission merchant. Um, according to the Kansas City Livestock Exchange, a commissioner is one who receives, sells, or buys livestock and charges a commission, also known as a percentage fee, for the same. They would travel directly to the ranches and buy from the farmers. They even engaged in speculation, but that was later outlawed in 1915. And by outlawed, I mean within the industry, not like it's not a, a law or across the land or anything. Alright, so naturally, it didn't take the commissioners long to band together and establish commission houses. Um, they even had written bylaws by 1886. So that's only 15 years after the official start date of the stockyards. A year later, we have records of 40 different commission firms, and at the height of its power, there were as many as 300 different commission firms in Kansas City. One of my sources also mentioned solicitors who visited the ranchers and tried to convince them to sell to a specific commission house. TBH, I don't know how this is different from what the commissioners are doing, but apparently it was considered really controversial. Anyway, with all these hundreds of firms, um, I can only imagine there were at least a thousand individual commissioners. What does that mean? That means there's a lot of questionable practices and, you guessed it, corruption. All the contracts were oral, and we know how foolproof the honor system is, don't we? For those of you who missed it, and how could you? Yes, that was sarcasm at its finest. Uh, they were accused of several different conflicts of interest and independent speculation, although, again, speculation was abolished in 1915. But as many internal problems as the commission firms faced, and I can't help but believe there's many, many more than what I found, they revolutionized the industry. It began as a cash market, and because the animals were squashed into the rail cars, I'm sure you saw at least one photo of them in an elementary school history book. 
But after being crushed into these rail cars for days on end without being let out or fed or watered, the cattle would arrive in Kansas City with all kinds of industries and often dead. So there's no way to standardize the quality of the livestock. So each animal had to be weighed and graded individually upon arrival. They had these massive pits in the ground with giant scales that are set at ground level and the cows just walk forward onto it and then they that's how they weigh them. It's actually kind of cool. But can you imagine how long that would have taken to weigh each one individually? And they're processing thousands a day. I mean, yikes, that sounds terrible. I would not want that job. But all of this individuality means that it remains a cash-only market. And I realized that was a bit of a tangent. All important information, yes, but what I was originally aiming for about my statement about revolutionizing the industry was the telegraph. Developed by Samuel Morse in the 1830s, um, and this is who the Morse code is named after, um, the telegraph allowed people to communicate across large distances in a very short amount of time. Not as fast as our modern methods of communication, of course, but compared to the snail mail of the 1830s, it's basically light speed. Side note, the telegraph put the infamous Pony Express out of business because, again, it could arrive way before the rider and his horse did. Um, the commission firms also produced their own journals. So, you know, it, you see why I say it feels very trade stockery, stock tradery. There, there you go, tradery. It's a new word, patent pending. It wasn't all sunshine and rainbows, though. There were some major struggles. Uh, there were several fires, floods, and even plagues. That sounds very Ten Commandments, and it was bad, but it wasn't that bad, so we're not quite at that level yet. But still, after the first time or two, you think they kind of would have figured it out, but no. The West Bottoms are continually beleaguered by water and fire. There was the Grasshopper Plague from 74 to 75. Um, that's 1874 to 1875. And then there were three different epidemics that they faced. Texas fever, pneumonia, and I have no idea if I said that correctly, and TB. So the Texas fever was caused by ticks. Uh, the Longhorns grew immune to the disease, but other breeds did not. So they decided to dip the cattle in arsenic to kill the ticks, and it worked, but guess what? <laughs> arsenic is a very powerful poison. Probably not the best idea they could have come up with. But eventually, the U.S. government did make it illegal to transport tick-infested cattle across state borders. Take a moment and imagine this for me. It's bad enough that you have hundreds of thousands of cattle, hogs, goats, sheep, and other livestock, because although I'm kind of focusing on the cattle, and that's what was the biggest industry. They uh, marketed all livestock here at the stockyards. Um, but just imagine all hundreds of thousands of them and all of their, shall we say, bodily waste everywhere. And on top of that, you now have thousands of carcasses, car carcasses, dead bodies from disease and starvation. And not to mention the aroma of the slaughterhouses and canyon factories that are right next door. Ugh, honestly, that's a level of miasma that I cannot imagine, but I will let you try. Anyways, um, these epidemics that were faced resulted in the establishment of the Bureau of Animal Industry in 84. And it, it got so bad that uh, they had to form quarantine yards at various times. 
There was a small fire in 1897 which destroyed the Hyde Brother plant, and another small fire two years later destroyed a plant owned by Jacob Dodd. Kansas City experienced a pretty large flood in 1903, and another smaller flood in 1904, and then another small flood in 1905. Um, correction, 1908. See, I told you, it's just one right after the other. Uh, but there was a huge fire in 1914, which destroyed 16 acres of pens, resulting in $100,000 worth of damage. And then an even larger fire in 1917. This fire destroyed more than half of the stockyards, which are all made of wood. Um, no one knew how this fire started in 1917, but when money's on the line, you got to find someone to blame. So a $5,000 reward for information was offered, and multiple German immigrants were accused of purposely setting the fire and arrested. Why did I specify that they were German immigrants? Well, think about it. It's 1917. This is World War I. America didn't just fight Germany in World War II. They fought them in World War I as well. But the pens were rebuilt, and the alleys between the pens were all paved with bricks, which is new. It's cool. Side note, there's an even larger fire. It just gets bigger every year, guys. Um, but there's an even larger fire in 1918 in the industrial section of the West Bottoms, um, which completely decimated the Abernathy Furniture Warehouse and the American Steel and Wire Plant. Those outside the Casey area might not be familiar with the name of Abernathy, but folks from my hometown should be because Abernathy's originated in Leavenworth and the old factory's still downtown. They just turned it into an apartment building. So the meatpacking industry actually predated the stockyards in Kansas City. Um, and in addition to the railroads, this is why the livestock industry became so big in Kansas City. There were so many plants and factories. And they basically intermarried one another. Um, for example... Patterson and Slavins established the first major pack house in 1867, and then two years later they form they merged with another company to form Ferguson, Slavin, and Company. Uh, another example uh, is Plankington and Armour, which established their pack house in 1870, a little more than 10 years later. They split because Armour went solo. It was a little bit in sync there for a minute, if y'all know what I mean. 90s babies, you feel me? And according to Armour Company history, the assembly line was a byproduct of the meatpacking industry. Um, one of my sources said, quote, It was the meatpackers who first introduced the concept of the conveyor line carrying animals past workmen assigned specific tasks for dismemberment, unquote. That's a bit gruesome, but, you know, it's efficient and effective. While we're on the subject of Armour, I went way down the rabbit hole on this company and the founder. Uh, I almost made it into a separate episode, but I couldn't find quite as many details as I'd hoped for, so we're going to fit it in here. There are, if you haven't been able to tell, a lot of rabbit holes in the story. I think I have at least one more. Uh, Simeon Armour Brooks was born February 1st, 1828 in Stockbridge, New York. Died March 29th, 1899 in KCMO. He was the eldest of six boys and two girls of Danforth and Julie Ann Brooks Armour. Ten points to Danforth for having such a unique name. I love it. Anyway, Simeon, uh, Simeon moved to Kansas City in 1870 and joined this new meatpacking industry. His brother, Philip, already owned the largest meatpacking plant in Chicago, the Armour Packing Company. So Simeon figured, if little bro can do it, I can do it. And Armour became what a few of my sources called the Big Four, a.k.a. the largest, richest, most powerful companies in this industry in Kansas City. 
The armor plant had this giant steam whistle that blew every day at precisely 9pm. People would set their watches by this whistle. Uh, it was basically the Kansas City version of Big Ben in London. It was also used as a fire alarm and to announce curfew. It was salvaged in the mid-60s and given to the city of Kansas City, Kansas. I don't know where it is now, but I imagine it's gathering dust in the basement of a museum or historical society. I know that sounds a little bit cynical, but I actually say it with a bit of fondness. I've worked in several museums and archives, and uh, I know that that happens a lot. Uh, ideally, objects are kept in a dust-free environment. But unfortunately, it's just not always the case. A lot of time, you just have to work with whatever is available, especially if you're a small institution and don't have a lot of money. All of that to say, though, that some of the most interesting stuff in a museum, like this whistle, is in the basement. In 1877, the Armor Packing, Packing Company created a chill room, and it changed everything. Guys, it's basically a giant freezer. So before this, the industry was kind of seasonal. But now you have a freezer, you can store things, and they last longer. It's amazing. Multiple pack houses began canning beef in the late 1870s, and Kansas City became the largest supplier of packaged beef in the U.S. Um, also, the primary supplier of packaged beef to, quote, British and French navies, whaling vessels, and lumbering and mining districts, end quote. Swift and Company, another of the big four, established their plant in 1887, they were the first dressed beef plant in Kansas City. Armour folded suit a few years later and built a new dressed beef plant for $1 million. So just another um, set of numbers here to give you guys an idea of scope. In 1886, there were seven plants with a total of 2,234 employees. In 1909, there were 10 plants with a total of 17,500 employees. So this industry... The meatpacking industry is basically all immigrants, um, and largely Eastern European, according to at least one of my sources. Um, centered in the West Bottoms in Missouri, and in Strawberry Hill on the Kansas side of the river. These guys created uh, what are called lodges. You can kind of think of them as a proto-union. Um, dues were collected weekly so that when you died, your family would have the money to give you a burial. Quote, these lodges, lodges also served as a social outlet. There would be regular meetings, picnics, dances, ice cream socials, etc. End quote. Um, and they were often associated with a church. So it also serves a social function. And the labor issues in this industry are fascinating. I thought I was done with my research, and then I found this book about the industry in the Midwest in general. Um, mostly folks not Kansas City and Chicago. But there was a chapter on women in the industry, and I was just like, wow, yes, I have to talk about this. So women joined the sausage department of packing plants in 1898, and they were basically pigeonholed there for a long time because they were faster at stuffing the sausages than men, and you know, general patriarchy and misogyny. On the other hand, uh, this was one of the highest paid jobs a woman could have at the time. They could also paint and label cans, solder cans. So, like, seal them, um, or pack chipped beef, uh, but those did not pay as much as the sausage stuffing. However, by the 1920s, women's employment in this industry had tripled and totaled over 12,000 across the Midwest. The number of black women in the industry also grew after World War One. 
In the 1950s, the United Packing House Members of America, UPWA, accused the packing houses of racial and gender segregation, brought a lawsuit against them. But listeners, you guys are smart, right? It's the 1950s. Do we really think there was segregation in the packing houses in the 1950s? Yes, yes we do. There were multiple strikes. In 1893, the labor strikes led to managers of five unspecified houses replacing Irish, Native American, and African American employees with Slavs. According to Wilson J. Warren's book, there were riots in 1921. But, like, that was it. He didn't say why or where or what, and I found nothing else about it. So, like, there probably were riots, but I just have nothing more to tell you about it. And I say there probably were because that same year, the Packers and Stockyards Act was passed by Congress. We have unrest, and the guys in charge want to keep the grubby hands of the government out of their wallets. So they signed the Packers Consent Decree in 1920, where they, quote, agree to dispose of the, their interests in public stockyards, railroads, market newspapers, and cold storage warehouses. They further promised to relinquish their business and unrelated lines and to stop the use of rail distribution system for anything other than meat products, end quote. Yeah, they had no intention of keeping this promise, and they never did. Quote, on August 15, 1921, Congress passed H.R. 6320, commonly referred to as the Packers and Stockyards Act, which took effect in September 1921 to, and this is a quote within my quote, regulate interstate and foreign commerce in livestock, livestock produce, dairy products, poultry products, and eggs, and for other purposes. That's the end of the inside quote. It became unlawful to engage in unfair deceptive practices, to give preference to persons or localities to apportion a supply among packers in restraint of commerce, to trade in articles, to manipulate prices, to create a monopoly, or to conspire to aid in unlawful acts. End quote. Alright, so that's a quote from America's Historic Stockyards by Janiel Pate. Guess what? It's time for another rabbit hole. See, I told you I had at least one more. This one's on the Mistletoe Stockyard. So they opened in 21 after the act was passed and were owned by Armour Co. and Fowler Packing Co. and resided on land owned by Fowler Packing here in Kansas City. Well, the Kansas City Stockyards did not like having competition. So they took them to court saying Mistletoe had devalued the price of hogs, was failing to honestly appraise the weight of the hogs, and misleading or outright lying about their shipments. Y'all, they got shot down hard. I'm imagining like this old school courtroom with a bunch of white men in white suits smoking big fat cigars. And the guys from the KC Stockyards are pouting when the ruling comes down that, no, nothing they're doing is illegal. <laughs> you guys got nothing. So I may or may not have described that very well to, for you, but trust me, in my head, it's hilarious. Anyway, according to the journal Butcher's Advocate, the Secretary of Agriculture decided that because mistletoe was not an open, for-profit market, they weren't actually a stockyard as defined by the act, but they were a packer. And as I said, none of the evidence supported the accuser's claims. The only thing the Secretary said that they were doing that was illegal was to forbid their shippers to ship with anyone else. And I kind of think that falls under the quote about... Um, 
restraint of commerce. I think that's where that falls. Another source I found detailed the transportation of hogs in and out of mistletoe in comparison to the Kansas City Stockyards and compared the daily number of hogs processed by each one and prices are and stuff like that. But unfortunately, I didn't find anything beyond that. I really wish I had more for y'all on that score, but I just don't. Like, I would love to know at least when they ended. Like, how long did they last? But anyways, that will be the end of our story today. Hope you enjoyed this cliffhanger. Thank you for joining me today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend, rate, and review me on iTunes. The more people who give me a good rating, the easier it is for others to find me. Uh, you can find me online at homegrownkc.wordpress.com. My email is homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com. And I'm all over social media as homegrownkc. I know you guys are listening. Please, please give me some feedback so I don't feel quite so much like my podcast is just being broadcast into a black hole. And please support me on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash homegrownkc. You can do this for as little as $2 a month, and if you subscribe to me on Patreon, you will receive additional episodes, which will only be available on Patreon. I don't have any up yet, but they will be coming soon. Thanks, as always, goes out to my talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, who created my logo, and to the Dear Misses for the use of their song, Kansas City, as the intro and outro music. Last but not least, to local libraries, which enabled me to gather all my research. Thanks for listening. seem to shake this feeling and i can seem to get you off my mind Thought i love my nerves.